0: wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever gazed in wonder at the Great Pyramid? Have you marvelled at the golden face of Tutankhamun? Or admired the delicate features of Queen Nefertiti? If you have, you'll probably like the History of Egypt podcast. Every week, we explore tales of this ancient culture. The History of Egypt is available wherever you get your podcasting fix. Come, let me introduce you to the world of ancient Egypt. Welcome to Explorers. Today we are going to take a look at one of the most unusual journeys of exploration in history, and that is the eight-year trek of Álvaro Núñez Cabeza de Vaca through the southwest of the United States and Mexico in the 1530s. Cabeza de Vaca's journey, which will encompass thousands of miles, is unique because the man never set out to explore. In the wake of the failed expedition of Panfilo de Narvaez, Cabeza de Vaca was stranded on the coast of what is modern-day Texas, and he would spend years living and wandering through the American Southwest and Mexico, trying to return home. In truth, his trek was not really an expedition of discovery, but one of survival. Yet in the end, it is recognized as one of the most amazing journeys of discovery that the world has ever seen. This podcast is sort of an extension of our previous podcast. There we focused on Panfilo de Narvaez and his expedition, but that story really morphed into a new tale, one centered on Cabeza de Vaca. So with all that said, let us get started. Alvar Núñez Cabeza de Vaca was born around 1490, give or take a couple of years, in Heras de la Fontera in Spain. His maternal family name Cabeza de Vaca, which means head of a cow, was said to have been associated with an ancestor who, in 1212, had shown the king of Spain a secret mountain pass, marked by a cow's skull, which allowed the king to defeat the Moors at the Battle of Las Navas de Tolosa. It's a great story, but probably not true. But it's a cool one, so I thought I'd include it in our story. And you know what? You never know. Maybe there is a nugget of truth in it, so that's good enough for me. Anyhow, Cabeza de Vaca's family was of minor nobility. They were not considered rich, but they were not poor either. Perhaps comfortable is a good term. There are indications that Cabeza de Vaca's parents died when he was young. I've read in his early teens, but the exact age isn't known. Thus, he was raised by a relative, likely his paternal grandfather or his aunt and uncle. Again, we're not sure. As a teen, Cabeza de Vaca would be appointed chamberlain to a noble family. A Chamberlain was someone who was in charge of the management of a household or living quarters of a monarch or noble. It's likely he had some training in his youth in the arts of war, and in 1511, he enlisted in the army. He would serve with distinction in Italy at the Battle of Ravenna in 1512, then later in Spain during a civil war in 1520 and 1521. It's believed that he emerged as a political figure in the 1520s, and it's likely he was in favor with the Spanish court during this time. So that takes Cabeza de Vaca up to 1527, the year the Narvaez expedition sailed from Spain to the New World. But let us step back a moment and recount the key events leading up to the Narvaez expedition, as well as the expedition itself. I know this rehashes the last podcast a bit, but I think a quick summary is in order. In 1519, Hernán Cortés invaded Mexico and defeated the Aztec Empire. This meant gold, and lots of it. And in the wake of Cortés' victory, others began to search out the next empire in the New World that could make them rich. One such man was Panfilo de Narváez, a Spanish conquistador. And in 1526, he was given a royal charter to colonize and exploit the lands of the Gulf Coast, roughly Florida to Mexico. I will stop here and suggest that you listen to that podcast on Narvaez if you haven't done so already. It's okay if you haven't, but I think it's a good thing to do if possible. Otherwise, on with Cabeza de Vaca. Cabeza de Vaca would be appointed as the second in command of the Narvaez expedition, but he was not there as Narvaez's man, but at the behest of the Spanish crown. Cabeza de Vaca would be the eyes and ears of the king on the expedition. Later, Cabeza de Vaca would write an account of the Narvaez expedition. But I basically consider his writings as two stories. The first one is the account of the Narvaez expedition itself, which we covered in the last podcast, and the second is his life after the expedition's catastrophic ending in November of 1528, and that is what we are covering today. It is from Cabeza de Vaca's writings that we will draw most of what you will hear in today's podcast. So Narvaez, with Cabeza de Vaca in tow, sailed to the Caribbean in 1527. Narvaez would have many missteps, but ultimately he would assemble an army of about 400 men, landing near what is present-day Tampa Bay in the spring of 1528. Against the advice of Cabeza de Vaca, Narvaez would separate his forces, electing to head inland with 300 soldiers in search of an Indian nation, the Apalachee, who supposedly had lots of gold. Narvaez never established a safe base of operations, a decision that would doom him. For more than three months, the Narvaez expedition would plunge through the swamps and forests of Florida in search of their non-existent city of gold. Their numbers would slowly be chipped away at by warfare with the natives as well as sickness, disease, and hunger. When it became clear that the only thing the Apalachee had in abundance were corn, Narvaez ordered his men to the coast, just south of present-day Tallahassee, Florida. During the trek to the coast, Cabeza de Vaca would be wounded, but it does not appear as if it was serious. Upon reaching the Gulf Coast, the Spanish took stock of their situation and found it was grim. They were on the brink of starvation. Their ships were nowhere to be seen, and there was no promise the ships would come this far north in search of them. And since Narvaez had never established a base of operations, there was no safe place to head toward. The Spanish could not just stay and wait. Starvation would be the likely result if they did that. Thus, a plan was hatched. They would build five boats and sail them west, to Mexico. The goal was to reach Spanish held territory. The closest settlement would likely have been near present-day Tampico, about 1,500 miles away, although we should note that the Spanish did believe they were much closer. So, in September, the expedition, now down to about 240 men, sailed west. The boats that they would build were not meant for the open sea, but to sail in the shallows along the coast. The journey would be a perilous one, fraught with many dangers. Starvation was the greatest threat, although thirst would be an issue when the boats couldn't come to shore regularly and get fresh water. Disaster would strike the small flotilla in the fall of 1528 when they reached where the Mississippi River pours into the Gulf of Mexico. Here, the currents are powerful. For days, the Spanish struggled to keep from getting pushed out to sea. Their small boats weren't built for such rigors. Narvaez commanded the best of the boats, and he had the healthiest and most robust men. As the boats fought the currents, he would let the other four boats fall behind, essentially abandoning his men to their fates. Cabeza de Vaca and the other four boats would struggle for days to stay afloat and keep from being swept out to sea. Food was in short supply, and fresh water was limited to the rain that fell. During all of this, a storm struck, and the four boats would be separated. We will discuss the fate of each of these boats, as best as we know them, but also in the time and manner in which Cabeza de Vaca discovered what happened to each. Some he will find out very quickly what happened, while others will take years to learn their fates. So at this point, this kind of takes us up to the end of our last podcast, and this is really where the story of the Narvaez expedition comes to an end for us, and becomes the story of Álvar Núñez Cabeza de Vaca. We will pick up our narrative as Cabeza de Vaca and his men are struggling to make it to land. So on with the story. As noted, the five rafts had been separated during a storm. The weather was cold and windy. Cabeza de Vaca and his boat had been pounded by wind and seas for days. Food was almost gone. Cabeza de Vaca said that the men in his boat were basically passed out on top of each other. They were so weak. He said that at one point, only he and one other man were even strong enough to take the tiller. Ultimately, they would aim the boat toward the coast and came ashore on a great wave. The men pushed themselves out of the vessel and crawled on their hands and knees onto to the beach. The date was November 6, 1528. Since leaving Florida, Cabeza de Vaca and his men had traveled roughly 650 to 700 miles. Although we don't know the exact landing spot of Cabeza de Vaca, historians generally point to Galveston Island or one of its neighbors, such as Follett's Island. Both are long barrier islands on the Texas Gulf Coast, about 50 miles southeast of Houston and part of modern-day Galveston. The islands are long and thin, no more than a few miles wide at the most. The mainland is not far from them, in some cases less than a mile. Cabeza de Vaca would name the island Isla Malado, the Isle of Misfortune. At this point, Cabeza de Vaca would have about 40 men with him, and as he was the senior officer, he would be in command. So, with his men shivering and exhausted, Cabeza de Vaca ordered a fire built. What corn the men had, they roasted. Rainwater was gathered to drink. When the men had eaten and warmed themselves, the strongest of the survivors, a man named Lope de Aviedo, was sent off to explore. He would find an Indian village, although there was no one there at the time. Oviedo took several items, including a small pot and some fish, and he headed back to his comrades. However, he was discovered and chased by the natives. Within half an hour, more than 100 Indians would come before the Spanish, all armed with bows and arrows. The Spanish must have looked like a pathetic lot. They were half-starved, weather-beaten, and their clothes were nothing more than rags. Cabeza de Vaca said that his countrymen were so weak that only six of them could even stand. Cabeza de Vaca, as well as Alonso de Solas, he was the inspector of mines for the expedition, went toward the Indians in an open and friendly manner. They took some of the few valuables that they still had, beads and bells, and presented them to the natives as a peace offering. The Indians returned the gesture by handing an arrow to them, a sign of friendship. Through sign language, the Indians said that they would return the next day, and most importantly, they indicated that they would bring food. And sure enough, the next morning, the natives returned with fish and edible roots. The women and children would also visit, showing off their beads and bells to the Spaniards. It was a start. The Spanish could easily have been killed by the natives, but some simple attempts at friendship had paid off, at least for the time being. Reinvigorated, the Spaniards decided to try and continue their journey down the coast. They dug the raft out of the sand and loaded it with all their food and provisions that they had. They stripped themselves naked and vainly tried to get the boat out to sea. Cabeza de Vaca said that they were about the distance of two crossbow shots from the shore, when a great wave struck them. A second wave followed, and the boat capsized. Alonso de Solas, the mine inspector, and two other men would be pulled under and drowned. The rest of the men were thrown from the boat and washed up onto the beach. It was a disaster on top of a disaster. The Spanish had lost everything, their boat, their food, and all their provisions, and even three lives. They were in a terrible situation. It was November. Winter was coming, and it was cold and stormy. They had no food, and they had no boat. Cabeza de Vaca wrote that they were closer to death than life. The Indians on the island would take pity on the wretched survivors, bringing them more food and water. And seeing that there were no other options, Cabeza de Vaca asked the natives, who he called the Capoques, to take them to their lodges. It was a desperate move, since the Spanish were sure that they would be sacrificed to some pagan idol. But the Indians didn't have any malicious intent toward the Spanish, and offered them shelter. As we have seen in many other similar situations, men shattered like the Spanish are often seen as harmless and can pass through dangerous situations due to their broken condition. The next day, the Spanish noticed that one of the Indians had an item, a trinket, that was of European in origin. When Cabeza de Vaca asked about it, the Indians said that they had gotten it from a group of men like them. When he heard the news, Cabeza de Vaca asked the natives to lead some of his men to the source of the trinket. With a pair of Indians as guides, the Spaniards were taken to a different part of the island where another group of Indians, called the Han, lived. With them were the men from one of the other rafts. They had come ashore about five miles from Cabeza de Vaca in his boat, and a day earlier. The leaders of the men were Captains Andre Durantes and Alonso del Castillo. Their boat had been badly damaged when they had made landfall. Cabeza de Vaca and the two Spanish captains agreed that they should try and repair the boat, and continue south to Mexico but they had only one craft, and so they decided that they would only take those who were healthy enough to travel. Those too sick or too weak would be left behind on the island to recuperate. Once the raft made it to friendly territory, a ship could be dispatched to retrieve the remaining men on the island. Unfortunately for the Spanish, the boat had been badly damaged. They were to repair it as best as they could, and when they tested it in the ocean, it would not stay afloat and eventually sank. The Spanish, who now numbered about 80, had no boat remaining, and they didn't have any tools or the materials to build new ones. They were stranded on the Isle of Misfortune. With the weather growing worse by the day, and the men sick and weak, the Spanish decided that the best course of action would be to spend the winter on the island, as it would allow the men to recuperate. Plus, and this is very important, there was little food to be had in the wild during the winter months. The natives knew this, and so they had spent the fall harvesting what food they could and preparing to make do for the long winter. While the Spanish would settle in for the winter, Cabeza de Vaca would send four of the healthiest men down the coast, the intention to try and reach Spanish territory. One of the four was a man named Figueroa. I mention this because he will pop up later in our tale, so don't forget him. A few days after the departure of the four men, the weather turned colder. The primary sources of food on the island were edible roots that the Indians pulled from the ocean, as well as fish. But as the new year rolled around, the roots would become inedible, and the fish would become scarce. It's important to realize that the native Indians of the region often managed to live by the thinnest of margins. Winter was the most difficult time. As noted, they had saved and stored up food to survive these hard times, but the community didn't have food to share with the Spanish, at least not on the scale that they needed to survive. And the Spanish couldn't just take what they wanted, like they had done in Florida and so many other places in the New World. They had no guns or armor or weapons. They were sick and weak and helpless. With little food to be had, the Spanish quickly began to die. Cabeza de Vaca said that the men were so hungry that five of them who had taken shelter on another part of the island began to eat one another as they died, until there was only one man left. The Indians had reportedly been appalled when they found out about the acts of cannibalism. They said they would have killed the Spanish before letting such a thing occur. The winter would be a brutal test for the Spanish. When spring finally arrived, only 15 of the 80 men would be alive, including Cabeza de Vaca. To compound the problems of the Spanish, after most of the men had perished, the Indians on the island began to get sick, a stomach ailment sweeping through the tribes. Roughly half of the natives would be killed by the illness. Many of the Indians blamed the Spanish for the deaths and wanted to kill them as a result. But Cabeza de Vaca said that one of the Indians pointed out that if the Spanish had the power over life and death, They would not have let so many of their own people die. Thus, they should just be left alone, and that's pretty much what happened. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly One interesting thing that did come from all of this was that the Indians insisted that Cabeza de Vaca work the healing art of blowing, which is a way to cast out an illness. The Spanish laughed at the idea, but the Indians insisted that the Spanish had some sort of power that they should share. Blowing is an old tradition in many cultures, but to the Indians on the island they would do the following, as described by Cabeza de Vaca. What the medicine man does is to make a cut where the pain is and suck around it. They cauterize it with fire, a practice they consider very beneficial. I tried it and found it gave good results. Afterwards, they blow on the painful area, believing that their illness goes away in this manner. So that was how Cabeza de Vaca took up the art of blowing. So insistent were the Indians that he performed the healing that they would not feed the Spaniards if he refused. Cabeza de Vaca added a Christian touch to all of this, reciting the Lord's Prayer and Hail Mary and making the sign of the cross. It likely gave an aura of mystery to him, as he was the only one that had these secret and powerful words and gestures. This healing is something that he will use to help him survive the coming years. It gave him a unique place in the eyes of the native peoples, something no one else could do. Now, I want to take a little side trip at this point. As I mentioned earlier, Cabeza de Vaca would write an account of his time in Florida and Texas and Mexico, and regarding the natives who he encountered, he penned some vivid descriptions. Of the locals on the island, he described them as tall and well-built, and the men pierced their nipples and lower lips. He noted that they lived on the island from October to February, living on roots, which they pulled from underwater, as well as fish. He also detailed how they treated their children, their funeral ceremonies, the clothing that they wore, their eating habits, and other rituals, and much, much more. It was amazing stuff, and it really shows Cabeza de Vaca's fascination with the people and places that he came upon. He sort of became the first Western ethnologist and linguist and botanist and naturalist, not to mention surgeon, of the region. All of it is so very different from the many Europeans who arrived in the New World. They would show up, fire off their guns, and say, where's your gold? Or give me some food. They never took the time to examine and understand the wide variety of people and customs and cultures that they were mixing with. And while many of the natives would treat him poorly, Cabeza de Vaca developed a genuine sympathy for many of the people he came across, He tried to treat them with kindness and understanding and respect. Even though he didn't realize it at the time, this mixing of explorer with scientist was somewhat revolutionary. It was something you'd find in later explorers, such as Lewis and Clark, or Burton, or Cook. So winter would pass on the Isle of Misfortune. As noted, the number of survivors would drop to 15. Starvation, exposure, and sickness the primary causes of death. The Spaniards were basically slaves at this point, doing whatever they were told to do in exchange for food. In early spring of 1529, the two tribes on the island went to the mainland, to a place where they would collect oysters. They would take the Spanish with them. Then in April, the Indians that Cabeza de Vaca was with went to a different place, where blackberries were now available. Castillo and Durantes and the other Spaniards were taken back to the Isle of Misfortune with the other tribe. Cabeza de Vaca, however, was left because he had become ill. Castillo and Durantes decided that now was the time to head south again, in search of friendly territory. They gathered the remaining Spaniards on the island and found that there were 14 in total, not including Cabeza de Vaca, who was on the mainland and sick. Two of the Spaniards on the island, Hernando de Alanis and Lope de Oviedo, could not travel because they were sick. So Castillo and Dorantes set off with 10 of their comrades. When they reached the mainland, they received word that Cabeza de Vaca was near death. They had planned to come and get him, or at least visit him, but now they decided to instead keep going. They did not want to risk the Indians getting angry with them for leaving or even killing them for trying to escape. So the 12 men would head southwest down the coast. Cabeza de Vaca would survive his illness and spend the next year in virtual slavery, most of this time on the island. The Indians worked him long and hard and fed him little. He said that in the second winter on the island, his hands were so tender from pulling roots from the ocean that the slightest touch would cause intense pain and make them bleed. But in the spring of 1530, Cabeza de Vaca escaped from the Isle of Misfortune and left his hard existence behind him. He would cross over to the mainland and join a group of Indians he called the Chiruco. He said they treated him better and gave him much more freedom. But Cabeza de Vaca knew that he would have to provide value to the Indians if he wanted to survive, so at the suggestion of the natives, he latched on to the idea of becoming a trader. Kabeza de Vaca found that the local tribes were often in conflict with one another, so commerce between places was often limited. So he took up collecting seashells, snails, sea beads, which were probably pearls, and anything that the natives valued. He would then haul these items inland to the different tribes and trade for hides and other items. As an outsider, he was not a threat to any of the tribes, and thus he was welcomed. The Indians desired his goods, and they treated him well, feeding him and housing him. Plus, he had his healing skills as well, something the natives desired. Cabeza de Vaca's newfound life was not without its perils, as he had to survive on his own now, often in the wilderness. It's a miracle that no one decided to kill him and take his possessions. Perhaps there was a bit of the wandering crazy guy thing that kept him alive. This white man, mostly naked, meandering through the land, practicing strange blowing healing. The Indians probably looked at him and just decided it was best to leave the crazy guy alone. No matter, Cabeza de Vaca said that it was good because he was obliged to no one and he was not a slave. He would travel upwards of a 100 miles trading his goods. But most importantly, his life as a trader gave Cabeza de Vaca a way to plot his way home. As he moved from place to place and tribe to tribe, he inquired about the lands around him. He found out what places were safe, where he could find food, which tribes were hostile and which were friendly, that sort of thing. And so Cabeza de Vaca became the land's wandering trader, a job that he would hold for several years. But in early 1533, he decided to make a move to return to Spanish-controlled territory. Now, you're probably wondering why Cabeza de Vaca waited three years to make a run for it. Well, one reason was that there were two of his countrymen who had been left on the Isle of Misfortune. Every winter, Cabeza de Vaca would return to the island and try to convince the two men, Alanis and Oviedo, to leave with him. But the men always refused or they had some excuse to wait for another year. Another reason may simply have been that Cabeza de Vaca was not ready. He didn't want to strike out overland into places he didn't know and without aid. Anyhow, in the winter of 1532-33, Cabeza de Vaca returned to the island. At this point, Lope de Oviedo was the only Spaniard left, as the other man, Geronimo de Alanis, had died. Cabeza de Vaca would make his case to Oviedo that it was time to head home. But Oviedo was afraid that he would die if they tried to head out overland, as he could not swim, and he knew that there would be rivers to cross on any journey down the coast. Plus, there were hostile natives, and starvation was always a threat as well. But for whatever reason, Cabeza de Vaca convinced Oviedo that they should make a run for it. So, in early 1533, the two Spaniards would begin their journey. Cabeza de Vaca and Oviedo traveled about 100 miles down the Texas coast. Near the Guadalupe River, they would encounter some Indians who informed them that, further down the coast, there were three men like themselves. Cabeza de Vaca was stunned to hear the news. He asked questions about these men and found out there had been many other white men, but they were all dead now. Only the three remained, and they were slaves, each of the three with a different tribe. The Indians told Cabeza de Vaca that if he wanted to see the white men, he would only have to wait, since the tribes were heading this way in two days, as they would come to the region every two years at this time to eat nuts. Likely pecans that grew in the nearby valley. Now, while the Indians had told Cabeza de Vaca all this information, they also decided it would be fun to terrorize the two Spaniards. Cabeza de Vaca said that they threw mud at them and beat them and pointed arrows at their hearts and said that they would kill them like the other white men had been killed. This seems to have caused Lobé de Oviedo to have a change of heart. The man decided that he did not want to continue any further. Likely worried that he would be killed by the Indians or made a slave, he preferred to go back to the Isle of Misfortune. Cabeza de Vaca tried to talk Oviedo out of his decision, but it was not going to happen. Oviedo would take leave of Cabeza de Vaca, and history shows him the door as well. So Cabeza de Vaca, alone, waited for two days, and as reported, the Indians, called Miriamis, arrived in the area. It turned out the three men were survivors from the dozen men who had set out from the Isle of Misfortune many years earlier. Most had died from cold and starvation or had been killed by the natives. Captain Andre Durantes was the first person who saw Cabeza de Vaca. Durantes was terrified at first. He probably thought he was seeing a ghost. It would have been an amazing reunion, after so much struggle and hardship, to find another friendly face after so many years. The two were overjoyed to see each other. Cabeza de Vaca wrote, We thank God very much for being together, and that day was one of the happiest of our lives. I doubt you could say it much better than that. A little bit of hope had slipped back into these men's lives. Cabeza de Vaca quickly learned who the other survivors were, Captain Alonso del Castillo and a man named Estevanico, the latter an African Berber, or Moor who had been a slave with the expedition. This was also the time that Cabeza de Vaca learned the fates of the rest of the Narvaez expedition. Now, I touched on this subject in the last podcast, but I want to repeat it here and add a little more information that I had not included last time. Let's recall, there were five boats on the expedition. Two boats with Cabeza de Vaca landed near Galveston. Four men would be dispatched almost immediately down the coast, and a dozen more would be led by Castillo and Durantes, who would leave in the spring of 1529. Of the four men who left in November of 1528, two would die of hunger. The others would be captured by Indians. Of those two, one would be killed when he tried to escape. The other, whose name was Figueroa, survived, and he would prove invaluable in learning the fates of the rest of the expedition. So, for one moment, put a pin in him. Regarding the dozen men who had left the Isle of Misfortune in the spring of 1529, they would head down the coast, even adding a couple of survivors from the other boats in the expedition to their ranks. But gradually they would die, succumbing to illness and starvation and drowning, and some would be killed by the natives. Eventually, they would be captured by the Miriamis. Their numbers had dwindled to just the three aforementioned men. However, on the journey down the coast, the Spaniards had come in contact with an Indian tribe, and with them was the man named Figueroa. It was Figueroa who told the Spaniards the fate of the two other rafts. He had learned it from Hernando de Esquivel, the last survivor of the two boats. So let's back up and hear that story. Remember, the five boats had been separated in the storm. Narvaez's boat had sailed ahead of the others. According to Esquivel, Narvaez continued along the coast, where in the days after the storm, they came upon the survivors of another of the rafts. This one included the priests of the expedition. Their boat had been wrecked roughly 40 miles south of Galveston. At this point, Narvaez's single boat could not hold everyone, so Narvaez would sail along the shore while others walked on the land as they headed south. One night, Narvaez stayed on the ship along with two men. During the night, a strong wind, perhaps a storm, carried the boat out to sea, and with only three men on the boat, they would be captive to the strong winds and the powerful currents. Panfilo de Narvaez would be pushed out to sea and never heard from again. His expedition had been a disaster. The survivors from the two rafts would eventually select a location to spend the winter, but as with the men on the Isle of Misfortune, the only thing that was waiting for them was hunger and sickness and death. One by one, the men would die. The Spaniards would even turn on each other when Captain Pantoja, the man appointed as second command by Narvaez, was beaten to death by another of the men. Starvation was the order of the day, and the men would turn to cannibalism to survive. As I said, we told this story in the last podcast, but I wanted to add the presence of the men from the second boat. It was something that I had not included in the last podcast, as I had not read my sources as thoroughly as I could have, and it just provides a little bit of closure for that part of the story. So, when spring came around, the only survivor of the two boats was Hernando de Esquivel. Esquivel would eventually be captured by some natives, and in time, he would cross paths with Figueroa, who would tell the story of Narvaez's demise. Figueroa would, in turn, tell the story to Durantes, Castillo, and Estefanico. Esquivel would later be killed by the Indians, while Figueroa would remain a slave. There is one other boat in the expedition not accounted for, so I'm going to cheat a bit and wrap up what happened to them, as Cabeza de Vaca would find out their fate in the near future. Some natives would tell him the story of a group of Indians called the Comones, who lived further down the coast, likely around where Corpus Christi, Texas is. The last of the boats would be wrecked on their shores back in 1528. The Spaniards were supposedly so emaciated and weak that they did not even try to resist as the Indians killed them. So that basically wraps up what happened to all the members of the Narvaez expedition, save for our four men, Cabeza de Vaca, Durantes, Castillo, and Estevanico. Just as a note, I will refer to the four as the Spanish or the Spaniards, even though Estevanico is an African Moor. It's just a lot easier than saying the three Spaniards and the Moor every time. So, Cabeza de Vaca and the other three survivors had been reunited. They all agreed that they wanted to make a go for Spanish territory, but they could not just set off together at this time. They were slaves, and they were not allowed to leave. They would have to wait for the right time and place to make their escape. So Cabeza de Vaca essentially joined the Mariamis. He would become a slave and be given to the man who kept Durante's. It's important to understand the four Spaniards were not all living in the same place. Cabeza de Vaca and Durantes were with one group of Indians, Castillo was with another, and Estevanico was with yet another. The different groups would come together at various times as specific kinds of food would become available in different areas. Thus, the four men would have to plot when and where they would try and make a run for it. They selected the summer of 1533, roughly six months away from when they had had their reunion. At that time, the tribes would head west, inland, to a place where a kind of prickly pear would ripen and be readily available. Thus, the four men would be in the same area together, and the tribes would be occupied harvesting the fruit, and they would have the best chance to make a clean escape. But it should be very clear that if they were discovered, they would be killed, as others had before them. So Cabeza de Vaca and the others waited patiently until the time came to head to the land of the prickly pears, as he called it, As planned, the tribes came together, but the escape plot would be derailed when the tribes would abruptly part ways after a quarrel broke out between the various groups. Before Cabeza de Vaca and his comrades could manage their escape, they would be hauled off to some new place, separated yet again. The four Spaniards would not come together for another year. During this additional year of captivity, Cabeza de Vaca would produce some amazing descriptions of life with the Miriamis, who were a hunting and gathering tribe. He went into great detail about their lives and customs, an invaluable piece of history that would have been lost had it not been for his work. But finally, in September of 1534, after a year and a half of slavery, Cabeza de Vaca and his comrades would come together, again in the land of the Prickly Pears. This time, they would make their escape. During the night, they would each slip away from their respective captors. It would take some time, but eventually the four would come together. This time, however, they were free. But where do you go next? That was the big question. And we will find out the answer next time when we wrap up the life and adventures of Álvar Núñez Cabeza de Vaca. Join Cabeza de Vaca and his three companions, two Spaniards and an African Moor, as they conduct an epic trek across the southwest of the United States and Mexico as they struggle to make their way back home. It's going to be a lot of fun, so you don't want to miss it. Thank you for listening. I'm Mike Troy, host of the American Revolution podcast on the Airwave Media Network. This podcast is the origin story of the United States, how we went from colonies ruled by a king to the democratic republic that we have today. The American Revolution podcast tells the story of the revolution from beginning to end. Please subscribe for free. We're available on all major podcast platforms. I hope you will join me today on the American Revolution podcast.